The book of Jeremiah, since it's been several Wednesdays since we've been in the book, this is a book of a man who had a 40-year career as a prophet, starting as a young man and going up into his, you know, older years. And he prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah. By the time Jeremiah did his ministry, the northern kingdom of Judah had already been taken away by the Assyrians. He did his ministry in the southern kingdom of Judah during the days of its final decline and eventual conquest. Jeremiah did not have an encouraging message. He had the terrible responsibility of bringing a message to call Judah back to repentance and a genuine repentance, not just a superficial repentance, warning of God's judgment and to do it again and again and again, even though his message was often rejected. And as we're going to see tonight, sometimes he was in physical danger because of the message. But let's start here in verse 1 of chapter 19. Thus says the Lord, Go and get a potter's earthen flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. And go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you. Now in the previous chapter, Jeremiah chapter 18, God told Jeremiah to go to a potter's shop, the place where pottery was made. And he spoke to Jeremiah through what the potter was doing with the clay. And basically what he was showing was that while the clay is malleable, while the clay can be molded and shaped into different shapes, the potter can do whatever he wants with it. If he wants to make it a plate, he can make it a plate. If he wants to make it a cup, he can make it a cup. If he wants to make it a bowl, he can make it a bowl. If he wants to smash the whole thing up and start all over again, he can do that. He was demonstrating that the potter is free to do whatever he wants to do with the clay while it is still soft. But now, now, God tells Jeremiah to take a clay bottle. It says here an earthen flask, but what you should have in mind is a clay bottle. And to use it as a spiritual illustration, look at it there in verse 1, before some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. Now this earthen flask was probably a small clay bottle with a narrow neck. It was easily broken and as is true especially for a bottle like this, but just about anything that's made out of clay, once it's broken, it cannot be repaired. Once it's broken, all you can do is smash it up and get rid of it. Now, if you notice here, centuries later, the Apostle Paul would write something about these kind of earthen vessels or clay vessels. He would write this. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul's point in 2 Corinthians is simply this, that the treasure of the glory of God is set aside in earthen vessels just like you and I. Now, friends, I've got to use a lot of self-control here to not just go off and preach on 2 Corinthians right now because it's really a marvelous thing that Paul does with this figure of the earthen vessel. He says, you and I are like clay pots, earthen vessels, And God does something really outrageous. God pours the wonders of his glory inside clay pots. Some people might even say crack pots. But he does that. He puts that in within us. Now, the only reason I bring that up is to point out that Jeremiah's message is very different. You see, Jeremiah just came from the potter's house in Jeremiah chapter 18. And God showed him how the potter could mold the clay into a new shape if the clay seems to be resistant to him. Here, once the bottle is made, 
The clay is hard. The clay simply breaks. It is baked, hardened, and breakable. There is nothing as workable as wet clay. There's nothing as fragile and and breakable as dried clay. So have that picture in mind. Now verse 2, go into the valley of the son of Hinnom. By the way, twice previously in the book of Jeremiah, into chapter 2 and chapter 7, Jeremiah made mention of this terrible place south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The valley of Hinnom was used in those days both as a garbage dump with continually smoldering fires. Think of you know, the way it might be at an old garbage dump with, with just fires smoldering all the time. It was used both as a garbage dump and previously before that as a place of child sacrifice. Now I mentioned that and I got to say this. Currently, there is no archaeological evidence for widespread human sacrifice or child sacrifice in the Valley of Hinnom. They just haven't discovered any archaeological evidence of it. Now, this may mean, now I believe it happened because the Bible says it happened, but it may mean that the practice was rare and only performed in the most extreme circumstances. But you shouldn't think that it was a widespread practice that there's a lot of archaeological evidence for. In any regard... This was called, where God told Jeremiah to go, the potsherd gate. What's a potsherd? A potsherd is a piece of broken pottery. And when the pottery was cracked or damaged in some way, you just threw it on the ground, usually in a pile somewhere, and it piled up in a great big pile of broken pottery. It was something of a garbage dump, and there was broken pottery everywhere around the potsherd gate. Now verse 3. And say... Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. Okay, can you picture Jeremiah at the potsherd gate? There he is standing there. There's the gate into the city. There's the valley of Hinnom. There's a few people gathered. Now he gathered everybody. He tried to get everybody to come. But listen, honestly... If you were an important person, if you were an elder of the priests, if you were an elder of the people there, would you waste your time listening to crazy Jeremiah? Friends, this isn't like a gathering of the Senate or the Sanhedrin listening to Jeremiah. It's a few scattered people around. People, okay, just send him. He'll go and listen to him. But Jeremiah is giving the message, everything he's got. Out there at the potsherd gate, he's giving this dramatic message, and notice what he says. He says here, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah. Now, by the way, do you think there were any kings of Judah there to listen to him? Not a chance. But again, he's speaking to the kings, even though they're not listening. And then verse 3, he says, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears it, his ears will tingle. That's how great the catastrophe is going to be. Now look at verse 4. Because, this is why judgment is coming, because they have forsaken me and made this, I'm sure he gestured out to the valley of Hinnom, and they've made this an alien place because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. Ladies and gentlemen, the prophet Jeremiah called out the kings of Judah for practicing, or at the very least allowing, human sacrifice in the valley of Hinnom. 
that's a terrible thing to think about. He says, because you have forsaken me and made this an alien place. And then verse 4, you have filled this place with the blood of innocence. Now either, either the practice of child sacrifice was more widespread than is currently confirmed by modern archaeology, which is entirely possible, friends. Archaeologists don't discover everything. That's possible. Or, and I think this is another distinct possibility, God regarded even a little bit of this practice as such a monstrous evil that it was a stain upon the kingdom. And I think either possibility is uh, viable. Now notice what he says, verse 5. To burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal. A child sacrifice was normally associated with a Canaanite deity known as Molech. But at least on some occasions, such offerings were made to Baal. And this was so monstrous that look at what God says about it in verse 5. Which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. This is what I want you to understand. It was not strange to a person in the ancient world at that time to believe that their God wanted human sacrifice. Ladies and gentlemen, if you look at the bestial practices of people in that part of the world to this day, would you not think that their God wants human sacrifice? In any regard, it was not a strange thing in the ancient world to think that their gods desired human sacrifice. But Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, he says, not only did I not say to do it, he says, it never even entered my mind. Now, I know what some of you are saying. You're saying, no, no, David. I remember that thing in Genesis chapter 22 where God commanded Abraham to offer Isaac. Friends, you're missing the whole point of that story, at least one of the big points of that story. One of the big points of that story is that God said, stop. No way. I don't want it. Do not offer your son to me. I'll agree it was a very dramatic gesture, both to test Abraham, but also to proclaim this. I am not like those Canaanite gods. I do not, not, not. I do not want human sacrifice. That's not the kind of God I am. So God was making a distinction there. It totally went against his nature to accept such human sacrifice. Now verse 6 Again, picture Jeremiah. He's crying out before a handful of people there. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no longer be called uh, called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of the heavens and for the beasts of the earth. I am astonished. Excuse me. I will make this city desolate and a hissing, and everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of its plagues. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall drive them to in despair. That's a pretty heavy message, don't you think? Notice how it begins in verse 6. It will no more be called Tophet. Tophet 
or in some translations, they add a H on the end, Topheth. It was another name for the Valley of Hinnom. It was a name that was associated with pagan sacrifices and child sacrifice. And Topheth probably comes from the Hebrew word for fireplace. Matter of fact, a few months ago, I was talking to a Hebrew or a Jewish, I should just say a Jewish and Israeli tour guide about this. I just happened to be having lunch with him. And I asked him about this. And you know what he said about that word Topheth? He said that in modern Hebrew, the word still has the association of fire. If someone comes under gunfire, and they all know because they're all trained soldiers. He said if somebody comes under gunfire, they might say, I'm under Topheth. I'm under fire. The Kinder also points out, a commentator named Derek Kidner, that the name Topheth also rhymes with a name called Bosheth, which means shame. And the Hebrews love to make these word games. Topheth, fire, but also connected with shame. And notice what he says here in verse 6. He says, this place shall no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Now God here is repeating a promise that was first given in Jeremiah chapter 7 that he would answer the idolatry of Judah and their outrageous practice of human sacrifice, even child sacrifice, he would answer it with a devastating judgment that there was going to be a grotesque slaughter in that valley. The dead corpses in that place would be so numerous that they would be disgraced by having no proper burial and they would become food for scavengers. Which, by the way, in the mind of an ancient Jewish person, that was thought to be a fate worse than death. They thought it was terrible for a person to die in battle or something, but to have your corpse left out on the battlefield just to be eaten by birds or predators, they thought that that was just a terrible fate. It was an utter disgrace of the person's humanity. God says, that's what's going to happen And he's speaking prophetically of what would happen when the Babylonians came in to invade Jerusalem. Matter of fact, he says in verse 8, I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss because of all its plagues. The catastrophe would be seen both in terms of the death of the people and in the destruction of the city. And if it can get worse. And friends, I, I got news for you. When it comes to humanity rejecting God and when it comes to the judgment that people deserve, it can always get worse. This is how worse it got in Jerusalem at that time or how it would get. Verse 9, I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. That's in verse 9. The city would be reduced to cannibalism. Even as the city of Samaria, the capital of the former northern kingdom, was reduced under siege from the Assyrians to cannibalism in those final days. And all of this would drive the people of Jerusalem, as it says there in verse 9, to despair. Okay, so you picture Jeremiah. How do you think people are reacting to this message? Hallelujah! Clapping their hands. Are you kidding? The handful of people that are there, they're revolted by it. They're angry. How dare you speak such things? So look at Jeremiah. He's going to continue on the message. Now, verse 10. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, even so I will break this people in this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet until there is no place to bury. Do you have the gesture? 
Jeremiah does another dramatic moment. He throws the clay bottle down and it breaks into uh, 20 pieces. And he says, God says, God says, that's how I'm going to bring destruction upon Jerusalem. And then he says, verse 11, they shall bury them in Tophet until there is no place to bury. Friends, let me just pause for a moment. Take it off my notes, if I could, just for a moment. Just ask a very simple question. Why? Why such a terrible message? Wouldn't you like to have a ministry like Jeremiah? No, thank you. I'd much rather tell people about the good news in Jesus Christ, wouldn't I? Friends, don't you see that it is the grace and the goodness of God that warns people of judgment before it happens? Don't blame God if nobody listens. And by the way, every announcement of coming judgment is a mercy of God because it invites the radical repentance of those who hear. And if they refuse to repent, the guilt is on their own head. You see, it's implied. It's within every announcement of judgment. If you truly turn back to me, this may be averted. At the very least, it could be delayed. So turn back to me. But they didn't. And it came upon them. I don't want anybody to leave this room here tonight thinking that God said such things to Judah through the prophet Jeremiah because he hated them or because they was mad at them. No, it's because he loved them. This is the inevitable result that's happening. It can go no other way unless you repent. Then I will relent from judgment or at the very least delay it. But it was not to be so. Verse 12. This I will do to this place, says the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and to make this city like Tophet. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Tophet, because all the houses on whose roofs they have burned incense of all the hosts of heaven and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Friends, what does Tophet mean? It has something to do with fire or burning. God says, I'm going to make this whole city Tophet. In other words, God didn't want anybody in Jerusalem or Judah to think, yeah, you know, the problem is isolated just to this one valley where they used to sacrifice children and set up altars to Baal and Ashereth and Molech as if that was the only place. God says, no, matter of fact, as I look out over the city of Jerusalem, every housetop has been a place of idolatry, burning incense to other gods. This whole city is going to burn. It's essentially what he's saying. Verse 13, because of all the houses on whose roofs they have burned incense to all the hosts of heaven. Because the idolatry was spread throughout the city, God would bring destruction upon the whole city. Now verse 14, then Jeremiah came from Tophet where the Lord had sent him to prophesy and he stood in the court of the Lord's house. And then he said to all the people, okay, stop right there. Do you get the change of venue here? He was out, sort of outside the gates of the city. There's the Valley of Hinnom. There's the broken pottery on the ground. There's the potsherd gate. Okay, after he's done it, honestly, I think he did it to like about three people. He gave this. He goes, man, this stinks. This was a good message. I mean, it was heavy, but it was good. Did you see my little object lesson too? I mean, I had a prop and everything. I had a clay bottle. So what does he say? Well, under the direction of God, I don't think he's making this up as he goes along, but in the direction of God, he says, you know what? I'm going to go give this same message up on the Temple Mount. There's people up there. There's important people up there. So he does. He goes up to the Temple Mount. Now, picking it up again, he stood in the court of the Lord's house and he said to all the people, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on this city and all her towns the doom that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their necks that they might not hear my words. Yeah, I imagine that very few people went to go listen to Jeremiah outside the city. So he went to where the people were. And he finds a place there on the Temple Mount. Uh, nobody's listening to him. They're going their way. Oh, it's crazy Jeremiah again. But he stands up and he plays and he delivers this message. And it seems because nobody was listening to me down there, but I'm bringing it to you now because they have, verse 15, they have stiffened their necks that they might not hear my words. Friends, I want you to understand. The greatest sin of Israel and Judah was not their sin itself. It it wasn't the idolatry. It wasn't the drunkenness. It wasn't the cruelty and the bribery and the injustice. Those things were not the worst sins themselves. The worst sin was that when God spoke to them about it, they stiffened their necks and would not reply. Look, here we are, right? We're a bunch of weak people who need the strength of the Lord every day. And and without the strength of the Lord in our life, we are liable to sin, are we not? But friends, your sin is ultimately not going to be what trips you up. What it's going to be is your refusal to listen to God's correction when you sin. It's a day of grace. God invites forgiveness and cleansing, just like Nate preached this last Sunday. Whoever confesses his sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what is involved there? Confessing your sin and coming to God. It's not the sin itself that will destroy your life. It's almost as if God says, if you would humble your heart for me and just confess openly, your sin's easy for me to deal with. But it's your pride. The pride that makes it so important for you to communicate to everybody. No, man, I got it. Everything's under control. Everything's good. Instead of honestly coming up with a broken heart and a tear-stained face and saying, I am so messed up. I need Jesus. I'm tired of playing this Christian game. I need Jesus. I need to be forgiven. My friend, if you only knew how wide the door was open for you right there. But again, it just means being honest with God and listening to his correction. That's what Judah would not do. Continuing on now, verse 20, verse 1. Now Pashur, the son of Immer, the priest who was also the chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur struck Jeremiah the prophet, punched him, and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. What happens here? Well, Jeremiah's doing his thing on the Temple Mount. Hey, everybody, you know, it's coming down. It's going to happen. You know, the, the, the destruction's going to come. Well, Pashur, the son of Immer, this leading priest, apparently, he didn't get the memo about what a great sermon this was down by the Valley of Hinnom. He just sees a crazy guy crying out on the Temple Mount. And what does he do? Well, he didn't receive it. He didn't respond. I imagine Pashur in his fine suit, listening there. He's a chief priest. He's dressed up in all the regalia. He's an important man. You know, you don't trifle with important men like Pashur. And he's listening with a calm detachment to the warnings of Jeremiah. He goes, tut, tut, tut. No, this will not do. This will never do. 
We can't have people like this bringing down the morale of the people. Come on, we, we need to be strong. We need to be concerned. We're winners in Judah. We're not losers. It's not a time to humble ourselves. It's time to be proud in Judah. So we're going to make an example out of this man. And what does he do? Did you see what it says right there? It says that, verse 2, Pasher struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks. First, he beat him. Now, there may be a technicality behind that phrase when it says they struck him. It may mean that he was beaten with lashes, as in 40 lashes. It may very well be. Or it could be that they just roughed him up with some punches. But friends, first, they struck him. And secondly, they put him in the stocks. He was beaten and had to endure painful public disgrace. He wasn't only regarded as a false prophet, but also surely as a traitor. You see, at this time behind the scenes, the kings and the politicians were trying to make deals with Egypt. And one of Jeremiah's important messages was, don't make deals with Egypt. They're just going to stab you in the back. Oh, but the politicians didn't want to talk like that. No, no, no. Egypt is going to protect us against Babylon. Come on, everybody. Let's make an alignment with Egypt. No way, Jeremiah said. They thought that he was acting like a traitor. He was bringing down morale. And friends, they put him in the stocks. Now one commentator, again, a really excellent commentator on the Old Testament, Derek Kidner, he says that the Hebrew word that's translated stocks there, it's formed from the verb to twist. In other words, he said you might translate the idea behind that Hebrew word as twist frame. And so you think of a man in the stocks, right, at some colonial reenactment place. Friends, let me tell you something. It was probably way worse than that. You were probably contorted into some painful, weird position and put in those stocks. This was not just the inconvenience. This was pain. And notice this verse 3, which was by the house of the Lord. Right there, very public place. It was not only meant to inflict pain upon Jeremiah, but public humiliation. Now verse 3. And that happened on the next day, the pasture brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. Now, by the way, remember there, he'd been there a whole day. Overnight, supposedly. That cannot be pleasant. And anyway, it happened the next day that pasture brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name Pashur, but Magor Misabib. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of your enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of this city, all its produce and all its precious things, all the treasures of the king of Judah, I will give into the hands of their enemies who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pashur... And all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. Well, nice to meet you, Jeremiah. This is what he says to the guy who led him out of the stocks. Now listen, Jeremiah, what a guy. He's been beaten and twisted in some painful situation all through the night. And finally, Pasture, feeling in a good mood. Ah, you know, maybe I was too rough on that guy yesterday. You know, I, I feel kind of bad about this. You know what? Let's let him out. He goes, oh, Jeremiah, look, you're free to go. Just look, just don't do it again. You're free. And as soon as Jeremiah's out, what does he do? Verse three, 
The Lord has not called your name Pashur, but Magor Misabib. Well, you didn't get that? All right. There's a little bit of confusion over this, but the name Pashur is sometimes given as meaning freedom, or sometimes people think it means ease or peacefulness. In other words, it has a soft, easy connotation. Freedom, peacefulness, something like that. The name Magor Misabib means terror on every side. Yeah, uh, your name's not peaceable. Your new name is terror on every side because that's what your life's going to be. Well, this was cold. This was a startling contrast between the two names. And that's why God says in verse 4, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. Jeremiah was showing him plain and clear, I do not intend to back off on my message one little bit. I'm going to boldly and plainly tell you, Mr. Priest, you, Mr. Governor, and everybody else who's going to hear that destruction is sure to come. Get ready for it. Matter of fact, verse 4, I will give all of Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. Yahweh was not going to deliver Judah, nor would Egypt. It's going to fall, was the message. Verse 6, and you, Pashur, You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die. Now, no doubt, Pasher was one of the ones preaching a reliance upon Egypt. Egypt's going to solve our problems. An alliance with Egypt, that'll be the fix. We've got one world power to come along, and another world power. Yeah, they'll counterbalance geopolitics, balance of power. I got it all figured out. You don't have anything figured out, Pasher. Not only are you going to go to Babylon, you are never coming back. You're going to die there. Now, would you blame Jeremiah for saying, Lord, can I have another job? Isn't there a Sunday school class somewhere that needs a teacher? Um, Parking lot, Lord. Lord, just let me do the parking lot. Something like that. Look at verse 7. Oh, Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. You're stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and blunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. You see, Jeremiah is explaining that he was compelled to do his prophetic work. In verse 7, he says, you're stronger than me. Lord, you, you arm wrestled me about this business, about being a prophet, and you won. I had to do it. You compelled me to do it. You induced me. Friends, that word translated induced right there in verse 7, it's a strong word. In other places in the Old Testament, almost, in other places in the Old Testament, it, it means to seduce. It it has the flavor. Jeremiah's pouring out his heart to God. You tricked me, God. If I would have known it would be this bad, I don't know if I would have signed up for it. But you prevailed upon me to do this prophetic work. He says in verse 7, I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. Of course, he's speaking of his recent occasion where he was punched in the face and put in the stocks of all the mockery and the humiliation that he had to face. But then he says, verse 8, the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. 
I am a faithful messenger of the Lord, and it's hard for me to endure the reproach. It's hard for me to endure the derision that comes to me every day. Lord, every day I'm telling them about the judgment and the catastrophe that's going to come along Judah. Now, friends, how long was Jeremiah's career as a prophet? Did you remember what I mentioned earlier? Forty years. Just a little experiment for me. Let's say, and if I was a little better prepared, I could tell you with certainty, so I can't really tell you. But let's say that this stuff happened approximately in the middle of his ministry. Okay? In the middle. Let's say at the 20-year mark. How much further was it until the judgment would actually come? Let's just say, for the sake of argument, 20 more years. You're not thinking about problems that are going to happen 20 years from now. And so to you, Jeremiah is just some blowhard who keeps saying it's all going to crumble, but things seem to go along pretty nice. But it was going to come. They mistook God's forbearance for not caring about sin. Verse 9, Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary of holding it back and I could not. For I heard many mocking, fear on every side. Report, they said, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him. We will take our revenge upon him. Jeremiah had to pay a very painful price to remain a faithful messenger unto the Lord. And on many occasions, he contemplated giving up or at least changing the message. Our old friend, the Puritan commentator, John Trapp, he has a way of turning a phrase. He says, this, says Latimer, he's referring to an old English churchman, this, said Latimer, in a like case, was a naughty, very naughty resolution. I don't know how naughty Jeremiah was being, but friends, he's telling God, I'm done I want to quit. Now, you see a lot of this in the book of Jeremiah. Lord, the price I'm paying for faithfulness to you is just too much. Maybe I'm done with this. You know what's wonderful about this? Is the best that we can tell from the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah spoke these doubts and these crushing disappointments to God, but never to the public. There's something beautiful about that, isn't it? But before the public, he did what God called him to do. Okay, Lord, I'll tell him again. And then when he was crushed or beaten or put in the stocks or whatever it was again, when he was mocked and derided, when he was made a reproach again and again, he'd run back to God and say, God, I don't think I could do this again, not even one more time. And what does God say? Yeah, you can. I'll strengthen you. You know, it really is okay to pour out your heart like this before God. He doesn't despise it. Matter of fact, even as he's pouring out before God, he's figuring it out. Look at there in verse 9. He says, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. It's like Jeremiah says, God, many times I wanted to quit, but I couldn't. I couldn't quit. I couldn't because I'm dealing with your word. 
This is your word and it needs a prophet to preach it. And that word you have, it lives in my heart. Your word has hit my heart. And when your word hit my heart, it burned in me like fire. Isn't there something wonderful about that? Friends, there's something about a man or a woman whose heart is burning with the fire of God's word. I forget who said it, but it's something to the effect of this. He goes, listen, have your heart burning with the word of God and then go up and preach and people will just love to watch you burn. Well, that's what Jeremiah did. He said, I can't stop. And then he said, that word is pressing against my very being. It's as if it's shut up in my bones and I don't have the energy to hold it back. I want to stop, but I can't. I'm called. It's what I'm meant to do. Lord, I must do this. And that's why he says in verse 9, I could not. What could he not do? He could not, not preach. I know I'm using the double negative, but that's how it's phrased. I can't not, not preach. I have to do it. I have to do what you've told me to do, O Lord. It cost me a lot of pain, a lot of humiliation, but I have to do it, and I have to do it faithfully. You know, it would have been easy for Jeremiah to say, okay, Lord, I'll preach, but now let's just talk about love. Now listen, I'm sure Jeremiah preached some messages on God's love. I don't doubt it. But that was not the main tenor of his message because that's not what the people of Judah needed to hear. They probably had lots of preachers telling them about love. They needed somebody to tell them the truth. And Jeremiah loved them enough to do it. And then he says, verse 10, For I heard many mocking. You see, they mocked Jeremiah's message of fear and coming catastrophe. They waited for him to stumble. They waited to take revenge on him. They called Jeremiah Magor Misabib, fear on every side. Oh, you call uh, Pashur that? No, that's what you are, Jeremiah. Then he says, verse 12, look at this, verse 11, I mean. <laughs> but the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will greatly be ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, you test the righteous and see the mind of heart. Let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my cause before you. Now he's getting filled up with faith again, isn't he? I don't know what it is, but there's just something about it. And friends, I don't know. I, I don't mean to compare myself to Jeremiah at all. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't touch the hem of his garment. But, but I know what it's like to be so discouraged in the midst of the work, to be so assaulted by um, condemnation, sometimes deserved, sometimes not, to to feel like you're just so sick of all of it. I, I can't do this anymore. This is it. I remember on one occasion, not here, a prior church that I pastored, sitting in the front row and being so overwhelmed by a sense of shame and guilt and unworthiness before I'm going up to preach that you just say, forget it, man. This is it. I go, this is it. I can't do, I cannot do this anymore. I'm so unworthy. I'm, I just cannot do this. 
okay, God, I get it. Okay, I'm going to stop. This is it. And I sit there and I'm thinking, you know, and it's, it's like the last song before I go up and preach. And I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, you know, obviously I got something prepared this morning. There's nobody else who's going to preach. So, Lord, this is the last one. This is it. I got to do this. I mean, I got to do this because there's nobody else here to preach. I got to do this and then I quit. That's it. And, and you can't describe the darkness and the despondency because it's not logical, it's spiritual that comes over you. It's not logical, it's just spiritual. It comes over you. He's sitting there thinking, okay, this is it. This is the last sermon. Now, I don't know what it is. It always seems, it seems like it happened with Jeremiah here because you saw the change in the verses I just read. It just seems to happen that oftentimes in those situations, Satan kind of overplays his hand. He, he just lays it on a little too thick or the Lord just shoots in a little special grace. So remember very clearly on one occasion, I'm just sitting there thinking, think, okay, this is it. This is the last time. This is it. This is the last sermon I'm going to preach. I, I got to get out. I can't do this anymore. And then I think, well, if this is the last sermon I'm ever going to preach, then Lord, make it a good one, Lord. I trust in you. Just remember that. <laughs> and I get up there and once you get up and begin, it's like the darkness and the fog just clears away. And it's like, well, let's, let's spend some time in God's word. And, and there's just something about this that Jeremiah felt. And when we see him burst out of it in these verses, look, look at it, verse 11, but the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome God. Yeah, Lord, I'm getting it now. Verse 11, therefore my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They said I would stumble. No, they're going to stumble. And then verse 12, oh, you Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and the heart. Lord, I'm content to leave the matter to you. Lord, maybe I am a crazy man. Maybe I do have it all wrong, but I'm going to leave it up to you, God. You can judge. You're the righteous God. I am content to do that. And then look at verse 13. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord, for he's delivered the life of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. He's shouting this out the window, no doubt. And I said, what's Jeremiah talking about? I've never heard Jeremiah this happy before. He says, yes, God, yes, you're going, I'm going to sing to you. You see, what an amazing transformation has happened in this prophet. He was ready to quit, ready to give up. I've had enough of this, Lord. I can't do it anymore. And then somehow, some way, just in the way the Lord's done in your life at some time or another, hasn't it? See, it doesn't have to be with a ministry like preaching, although it could be in whatever way God's given you to serve God. Some can be just going on in faithfulness to the Lord. Some just hanging in there and resisting temptation. Staying in that difficult circumstance. Whatever it is. To just have, by a miracle of God, him and come and bring a new strength, a new sweetness to it. That's what Jeremiah experienced. Now, I wish that the chapter ended at verse 13. But friends... This is real life. Okay, this is real. Okay, it doesn't always end. Yes! Let's look at the rest of the chapter. Cursed be the day in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man, who cur- let the man be cursed who brought news to my father saying, a male child has been born to you, making him very glad. And let 
that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. He means Sodom and Gomorrah. Let, that, let me hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon because he did not kill me from the womb that my mother might have been my grave and her womb always enlarged with me. Why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame? Isn't this real? Right? Friends, I hope I'm not depressing anybody here tonight. But let me tell you something. This life is going to be a battle until the day you get to heaven. It will. And I don't doubt that in that battle along the way, you are going to have glorious successes, tremendous victories. You're going to be like those singing praise to the Lord. No doubt. Plenty of it. I want more and more of it in your life and in mine. But friends, there's going to be more battles to fight. And sometimes we're going to come back tail between our legs and say, God, fix this, please. You see, it's that way by design to keep us utterly dependent upon you. If God could somehow give you a shot, and I mean like a literal injection tonight, and that shot would, within your whole life, give you this whole thing where... um, you're, you're never going to get down again and you're just going to have an unbroken trail of victory from now till the day you go to heaven. You say, sign me up for that shot. I w- thank you. This is exactly what I've been waiting for at church. Honestly, if we got that shot, how long until we lessen our vital dependence upon the Lord? I don't need the Lord. I got a shot. Something like that, right? No, friends, this, this despair that Jeremiah has at the end, it's painful. It's, it's really painful. Verse 18, why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow? Friends, there's a purpose of God in setting the section of grief immediately after the section of faith and triumph. It shows that trusting God doesn't just magically make it all easy. The battle remains, and the reliance upon God has to be constant. It's interesting that Jeremiah thought his problem would be over if he was never born. Isn't that what he's saying? Listen, Jeremiah, I got some tough news for you. God called you before you were ever conceived. God was thinking before all that. Remember this? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. That's in Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah, you think your troubles go back to the womb. Nuh-uh, I had a plan for your life before the womb. I thought about this ahead of time, God says. That's why I called you before the womb, because I knew you'd be praying some silly prayer like this. Listen, listen. If you ever feel like you hit rock bottom and you're so despairing in your spiritual life that you feel like giving up, I just want you to know this. Jeremiah was there before you. Have we ever been as low as this? I don't know. Probably not. I'm not saying more. I'm just saying at the very least it's a tie. Okay? You tie for being the most despondent person on earth. Okay, good. Jeremiah was there before you and he saw God's faithfulness real in his life. God is going to work it real in your life. 
Father, that's our prayer. We come before you, Lord, recognizing that now till the day we die, it is a battle, Lord. And uh, instead of getting um, angry about that or bitter about that, Jesus, we say, would you please be the captain of our salvation and would you see us through to the end? Lord, we, we look forward to that day when it is easy. We look forward to the day when it is an unbroken chain of victory, when it is nothing but from glory to glory. Lord, we know that day is in heaven. And it, it can't happen quickly enough for us, Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that day, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on you, Jesus, and to have rest and a comfort in that. We love you. We praise you here this evening. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.